Weekly Signals, every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. Join me, Mike Casper, and Nathan Callahan for the best in reality-based radio. That's Weekly Signals. Check out the website at weeklysignals.com. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good evening. You're listening to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and online at KUCI.org. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer and sometimes co-host with Mari. Mari's a local attorney and privacy consultant and is the author of several books including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. She sits as an advisor to the State of California Office of Privacy Protection and she's a sheriff reserve here in our county. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on uh, TV, Dateline, 48 Hours, Investigative Reports, NBC, CNN, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, Araldo, just about all of them. She presented her own 90-minute PBS television special last year, and they air that from time to time. It's called Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Good evening, Murray. Good evening. Let me tell you, tonight is going to be fun because we are going to be speaking with Tom Zeller, who's a fabulous journalist with the New York Times. I've had the pleasure of speaking to him many times on the phone, writing him emails, begging him to do stories on my clients, which he's helped out and uh, when a, a friend in need is a friend indeed. And I'm, I'm so thrilled to be able to turn the tables on him and interview him now because he is terrific. So let me tell you a little bit about Tom Zeller Jr. He's a New York Times journalist um, dealing with technology and society. Tom writes... Um, Uh, quite a few days a week. In fact, uh, I I love to read his articles. Many recent stories have looked at the dark side of privacy and technology, and so he informs his readers of really important issues that they may not read anywhere else and they probably don't know about because it's hidden. He's he's done uh, quite a few stories and series of stories on uh, stolen identity and stolen lives, including two of my own clients that we've interviewed. Um, Before coming to the Tech Beat, Tom was an editor and contributing writer for the paper's popular Week in Review section. In addition to assigning and editing essays and designing visual packages for the section, Tom wrote stories and topics ranging from the risky, sometimes deadly, journey of Mexican border jumpers to Saddam Hussein's prolific use of body doubles. We should ask him about that. And prior to joining the Times, Tom worked some interesting jobs. He was a clerk in Cleveland, a kindergarten teacher in Finland, and he held a a number of other factory jobs until he went back to school and he got his BA in English um, uh, from Cleveland State University, and then he got his master's in journalism from Columbia University. So we're really thrilled to have him. He's he's, uh, really deserves uh, a lot of uh, Thank you from us for joining us all the way from New York tonight. Hi, Tom. How are you, Mari? Oh, I'm thrilled that you're joining us. Thank you so much. I know you you just got back from vacation recently, and you're prolifically writing all over the place. So. <laughs> 
You know, I want to mention one of the most recent articles that I that I read uh, just this uh, past week. Really interesting about that AOL situation where we're, you can um, basically find out who someone is by just looking at their searches. Can you right. tell us a little bit about that story and, and uh, what's going on? Uh, right, yeah. Well, that was uh, a lot of people were very interested in that one. Um, that uh, involved uh, America Online essentially uh, inadvertently posting uh, about 650,000 uh, users' uh, search information. Uh, uh, basically, uh, their users had uh, gone online and, and were looking for information like all of us do when we go and, and get onto a search engine and look for, you know, shoes or, or uh, you know, look for movies or, or medical information, anything that we would normally look for in a, in a, in a search engine. Um, and it seems that uh, they were they were storing this information, and they they published it online. Right. Um, <laughs> big mistake, right? Right. <laughs> so uh, it was only up for a very short time. Some blogs uh, took note of it very quickly. Um, and this all happened in the space of, of days. I think it went up on a Friday. Um, and it got taken down. Uh, I think some blogs noted it on a Sunday. Um, it was taken down very quickly, but by then the cat was out of the bag. Um, and uh, what we managed to do was, and, and what is so essentially damaging about this kind of information being out, two things happened really, is that it, it, was, it was a real kind of wake-up moment for people to realize that search companies are able and quite willing and they do store our search information when we when we you know go looking for things on the internet and i think maybe a lot of us kind of tacitly know that but ordinary or ordinary users might not even you know consider that fact um, and and also it was uh, it was also a, a kind of a wake up moment for uh, I think for privacy advocates who who said, okay, this has got to stop. This is this is, you know, kind of a we've crossed a line now. And I think that the AOL has kind of really set itself up for, and and most of the search engines have now kind of set themselves up for a real kind of uh, a tug of war legally and and maybe even legislatively. Yeah, and poor Mrs. Arnold, the uh, elderly widow. Why don't you yeah. talk about that? How did did you end up talking to her? Well, Michael Barbaro. This it was really a team effort in inside the Times. Uh, what happened was um, the the information that was posted by uh, America Online was anonymized in that um, the there were no actual names or screen names or anything attached to the search queries. There were just numbers. So I, I don't recall exactly what num what her number was. We we put it in the headline. Right, right. Um, it's a long number. <laughs> yeah, it's a long number, and all of them had long numbers. Um, but uh, when you when you look at what someone searches for over a long period of time, it starts to give some clues. So one of our editors, David Gallagher, actually took an interest in looking through a lot of the data, and there was tons and tons of data. But he kind of zeroed in on on this particular user's searches because it happened to mention uh, a town in Georgia. 
And so, okay, now we have, we have a certain geographical location, okay? Um, and it also happened to mention a, what appeared to be a surname, which was Arnold. So, okay, now, now we're starting to get... Closer. You know, we're getting closer. <laughs> yeah. um, and it also happened to mention some particulars like, um, it seemed to indicate that she had a pet because she was looking for, obviously... Um, yeah, information and about dogs that right. have urinary problems, right. um, which was one of the interesting points. And she also mentioned a particular uh, uh, housing development within this small community. Um, and we were from that we were able to determine that that there was an Arnold living within that development within that town. Um, and it just took a simple phone call. And from there, Michael Barbaro, another one of our reporters who actually normally writes about retail, but is you know. A, 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 top-notch reporter, um, actually made the phone call and, and talked to her. And, and she, very, she was a, she's a very smart lady, and she, she very quickly, she was actually, actually very shocked yeah. to be getting a phone call, of course. Right. But she also very quickly understood that this was, you know, there was a larger issue here, and she was, she was willing to go on the record and, and to kind of become this kind of symbol for a larger problem, which was... You know, it worked out very well for us, and I think it works out well for a, a larger conversation that really needs to be had culturally. Yes. It, you know, Tom, it reminds me of, of, you know, a couple things that we've talked about, you and I have talked about, and we've talked about on that show, is that a number, they, if you believe that a number is going to anonymize you, if the number has enough attached to you, you can find out who that person is, whether exactly. it's a, a social security number or an RFID tag. Exactly. You know, and, and people think, oh, if you have an RFID tag and somebody just gets your number, then you're anonymized. But that's not true. And I think this really brings this right home that right. that this kind of stuff is going to link who you are. And then, you know, the other thing that, that I thought was interesting about your article and some of the other articles I read is that it can also... Um, misrepresent you. For example, she looked up a lot of things medically and about exactly. about smoking, for example, yeah. and she doesn't even smoke. She doesn't smoke. Yeah. Right. She exactly. was looking for her friend who's trying to quit smoking, right. and someone looking at that would say, aha, she right. smokes. Well, let's charge her higher health insurance because exactly. she smokes. Right. And, right. and those are the scary things that are all about this kind of uh, profiling of us, isn't it? There's lots of assumptions that can be made just based on data that can be really, really misleading. And, uh, and that's, that's one of the big problems with, you know, data profiling. And, you know, I, I mean, and, and it should be cautioned that, you know, none of this data was, was intended to be used as profiling data in the first place. This was purely information that was being collected for research purposes. And, and that, that really is, in, in AOL's defense, that really is what this particular data set was being collected for. It was, it was, it was collected for a very specialized purpose um, for optimization of their search engines. So, that, I mean, they have AOL has like, you know, geeky guys in lab coats in, you know, who collected this data uh, over a three-month period, and it was just strictly taken from users who, for instance, only only connected to the internet using um, AOL, the AOL client, the AOL software, 
and search these, which is a very kind of rarefied, I don't know if you use AOL software at no, all. No, thank it's God. A, it's, a, it's a kind of shrinking population that actually does right, that anyway. Right, right, right. Um, but so, and, and it, was only, it was only going to be used so that they could test um, how their internal search engines work and to run their algorithms and you know, which is a fairly common thing within the research community. I, I really think that this was a very innocent kind of data set that they were collecting. That's not to say that they don't also collect lots of information for marketing purposes that are that are, depending on what your point of view is, less innocent. Or you know, obviously businesses, you know, are, have an interest in collecting marketing data. I mean, that they're in that. That's what they're in business. Right. So they, they can market dog them. food to her or, you know, dog training classes or something e like exactly. that. Exactly. Yeah. And they, yeah. they may have information on yeah. on her elsewhere in other forms or at least on her computer or how she behave, how her, that particular user at that IP address behaves in some other data set. That AOL may have that. But that was not this particular data set. This was, you know, purely a research data set that was, you know, inadvertently exposed to the world in a way that had no market. It was not intended for marketing, and it was not intended to be creating profiles of people. So, I mean, that, that needs to be said just in AOL's defense. Uh, right, but Tom, isn't, the, isn't that the point yeah. that, you know, part of the fair information principles say that right. when you collect data for one purpose, it should not be used for another? That's it's just the problem. Like, yeah, right. that's yeah. The, that's the whole thing. It's like the social security number, getting back to these other numbers, right. the social security number was for earnings to help, you know, track earnings so we could get social security if there's mm -hmm. anything left. And then now we see it used for other purposes or it's 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 information gathered for academia or mm -hmm. for research purposes and then someone gets a hold of it and uses it in in all sorts of insidious ways mm -hmm. or or you you go flying right and your right. frequent flyer right. number and then all of a sudden they start wondering like why why are you going back to afghanistan all the time yeah. you know and so that is the point is always, yeah. it's always innocent at first right well i don't know if it's always innocent <laughs> at first i don't know if it's always innocent at first but there's certainly if if even if the even if businesses can argue that well we need to do this or we need to do this in order to for instance provide you know an optimized search service or to continue providing customers with x um, there certainly needs to be some kind of legal regime that that says well if you're going to collect it you need to protect it or that you need, and right as it as it exists now the certainly AOL there is no there is no legal apparatus that that holds them accountable for what happened. I mean, there, right. there, there is nothing. I right, mean, there's right. No, um, there is well, no maybe, I guess she could, um, you know, maybe she could go after, I, it depends on what happens. If she has some damages, if someone finds that out, and then they stalk her because of that, you I know suppose, what I mean? Right. But yeah, if there's something else that happens, then she could, and she could trace it back to them, she could have some kind of privacy you know what I mean? Some kind of privacy invasion. Right. But the sheer act of having leaked the information isn't a violation of any particular law. I right. Mean, have, no, the Privacy Act applies only to, you know, the government. Right. And, you know, what what is there for private industry collecting all of this information? Exactly. That's you know. what that's that's really a, a huge issue of, of, you know, what we're getting to is yeah. that we don't have those protections. And, you know, those of us, like you said, Mari, you know, do you use AOL? No, but I use Google, and Google does the same thing, don't they? I mean, really? there's Google, all these 
search engines. And um, didn't you write recently also about, remember when, um, you know, the government was collecting all of those, uh, you know, the search engines to, to look for terrorists? Wasn't Didn't that happen too recently? Um, well, the... I mean, Google, we we did have a bit of a dress rehearsal. I don't know if this is what you're referring to, yeah. or not, but we had something of a dress rehearsal for this moment when the Department of Justice was, you know, issued a subpoena for right. search data from, from a lot of these search companies right. um, earlier this year. I think it actually... The, the it was Google that refused, right? Google refused, yeah. And uh, but uh, you know, but AOL, AOL was did not. <laughs> AOL complied, and right. you know, the, the data was much more limited that they were looking for, and it didn't involve any kind of identifying information. I think they were just looking for search strings that were unattached to anything that was identifiable. Which, and well, you wouldn't, you wouldn't have been able to build, you wouldn't have been able to build any kind of mosaic from from the information they were looking for, but. It, it does set a precedent, and had the government been looking for it, looking for a, a wider swath of information, you certainly could have. And the search companies definitely have information that could could identify someone. Right. And I mean, if so it, if it can be used for that purpose, if if a reporter, you know, who's an astute reporter, can go and find out poor Miss Arnold, then um, if the Justice Department is looking for strings. Obviously, on one hand, you say, well, good, you know, we want to catch these terrorists. But on the other hand, there can be this, this again, you know, somebody who's got family in Afghanistan that keeps going to Afghanistan to, to right. see their grandma or something, you know. So that's that's the scary part. Right. And it raises the question, I mean, and a lot of times I think that the companies don't even have a good answer um, for... Yeah, the question of why they're hanging on to a lot of this data as long as they as long as they actually are, because I mean, in in, in some cases, I think it's just they're holding on to it because they can. Right, you know, they don't right. they don't know exactly what they're using it for now, but we may have some use for it later on. You know. Yeah. Um, and I think Google is one good case for that. I mean, they have such huge you know stores for for this information and. Um, it, it costs them nothing to, to just keep storing it all, so so they just do. And right, you know, they it, figure it's well. You know, it's valuable. I mean, it, eventually it could be used for marketing. Eventually, it could be used for some other kind of research. Right. That you know, so they keep thinking that. But again, that goes to the issue that you talked about just a couple minutes ago. There's really no law that yeah. that sets up a thing like you must delete after one month right. or after three weeks or something yeah. like that. I think immediately after that, or yeah, just while the um, while the Department of Justice and and Google were were in in their tug of war over that, I think Ed Markey introduced a, a bill that would require the, uh, companies like Google to purge their their stores of data. Um, or maybe it was immediately after they uh, Google was victorious in that he introduced a bill. Um, that would have required companies to to regularly purge that that data, but of course that I'm quite sure it didn't go anywhere. It's, right. Um, now this might be different because of the fact that it's not the government trying to find things to um, you know uh, prevent terrorism. This is a little old lady who <laughs> you know who's minding her own business and she's a widow and she's just trying to help her friends with medical and why should they be able to find her? So that may be helpful. 
Let me just introduce you again. We are speaking with a fabulous journalist with the New York Times. He writes on privacy and technology. He's very astute about all of this stuff, and he does. He, I love the way you write, by the way, Tom. <laughs> yeah, I, I just really enjoy. In fact, I have to tell you, um, my son, who who is on the East Coast, who's trying to move to New York from uh, Massachusetts, periodically sends me your articles, and I say, I already saw this. You know? Is that right? Yeah, he reads them too. So yeah. What does he do out on the East Coast? Well, he um, has a master's in art history, and so he went to Williams College, and he is working in the Clark Institute and looking to do something. He's dying to go to New York, so uh, oh. we'll talk about that later. Okay. <laughs> anyway, let this kind of leads. I, I kind of jumped in on that, but I want, I want to know, how did you get into all this privacy and to become such a techie? How did that all happen? Uh, how did I become a techie? Yeah, you're kind of a techie. Yeah, you know, <laughs> I think it was all kind of accidental. I mean, um, I, you know, I, I had a, a vague interest in, in computers, I guess, since I was a kid. Uh, you know, I grew, up in, I, I grew up in Cleveland and, you know, kind of a middle-class family, and we had a, we had a, a Commodore 64 around the house, so that, that kind of was mm-hmm. the beginning of it. I was fascinated by it, so, um, and, you know, and I, as I, I kind of missed the whole computers in the schools, um, uh, age, I think, you know, kids now have it completely easy, I mean, I was still using a typewriter when I kind of came up through school, I'm sure, right, right, so, um, but, uh, you know, when the web was kind of first coming out in the in the early 90s, I was just endlessly fascinated by, you know, the ability to, to find information. And I, I did have some experience kind of working in libraries, which is, you know, along with the government, kind of where where the roots of the Internet were, were born. So there was a lot of networking, um, computer networking going on there. Um, so I think that that's, that's kind of where my interest in the, the, the movement of information over, over electronic, you know, corridors first kind of piqued my interest. Um, and then from there, I just kind of on my own, you know, became very interested in, in web design and, and, uh, and com- a little bit of computer programming. And as I, I think as I mentioned, when I, when I got out of grad school, uh, I somehow managed to bluff my way into an internship at the uh, at the website at the New York Times, which was brand new. Uh, they they had just launched a um, I think in 1996 was when the New was first born, and so they were two years into that when I first got to the Times, and I did an internship there. And so I, you know, I, I think my first experience in journalism really was computer-based or technology-based. So that was always kind of in the background or always yeah. a part of a part of what my journalistic experience was. And I kind of uh, I moved away from that when I first started working at the newspaper. I actually worked in graphics for a while, um, and that's where I learned to do you know web design or uh, newspaper design. And I I worked in graphics for like four years doing maps and charts and. Well, I think you really found your place. You you happen to do things that that um, I I really think is educating our society, yeah. you know, and that is showing 
a, a lot of the times the dark side of technology and privacy. You know, when I think of some of your articles, like you talk, I remember when you interviewed the the twenty year old identity thief. Yeah, that was a great story. You want to tell a little bit about that because you know people out here in California can't always get the New York Times. You know, I I have to get it on the net. What? <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. What? Yes, we're on the we we get the L.A. Times. I hate. Come this. on. <laughs> I'm sorry. They deliver out there. <laughs> I know, but it's like five dollars. It's so <laughs> ridiculous, you know. On a Sunday when I buy it, it's five dollars. Where it's crazy. Right. I understand. But anyway, I do read it on the net. I, I do. So, yeah. Okay. So um, t- tell a little bit about when you interviewed the the identi- the twenty year old identity thief. That was. Yeah, that was Shiva Sharma. Yep. Um, he was an interesting guy. He um, he was a local. Um, he grew up in Queens. He was an immigrant. Um, his family emigrated anyway from uh, Trinidad, and um, he kind of we we were doing this series on stolen lives. So I was kind of casting about looking for. Um, you know, we often hear, as you know, you know, a large part of telling the story of identity theft is is talking about victims because that's, right. that's mostly what we end up um, end up with because thieves are, are you know pretty hard to come by actually right. it's, it's a very easy crime to get away with in fact right um, and and I think in particular if it's if it's an electronic crime you know if the perpetrator is doing it over the internet um, from from afar which can be you know the next state over or from Russia or from, you know, forget about it. You're never going to catch this person. Right. Because you don't know who they are. It's like that that, uh, New York magazine had that great cartoon with the two dogs sitting at the computer, and one dog says to the other, well, when you're on the computer, nobody knows you're a dog. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. You know, and that's the, I mean, that's one of the things about the Internet is it's, you know, as much as it's kind of, you know, as much as it's kind of benefited and opened up our lives, it really, you know, it benefits thieves, too. It benefits exactly. people with, with, you know, malevolent aims as well, you know. Exactly. Um, so Shiva kind of had become a minor celebrity around New York because he he was a guy who wouldn't give up. I mean, he... He had gotten busted um, for um, identity theft, I think, for the first time in 2003 um, uh, through phishing, which yeah. is, as you know, one of the most common forms of, of getting uh, identity identity information. Let's just tell our, our, just in case somebody doesn't know what phishing is, which most people probably do, it's phishing with PH. Yeah. And it, yeah, and it's it's a authentic looking email that right. says that they're Citibank or whomever and you have a problem, please go to this website and, and then they ask you for all the information that they need to steal your identity. Exactly. You know, and, and this was a, he was a teenager when he first kind of perpetrated this. And he, he learned everything he knew from online sites um, that, that are tutorials in how to steal identities. And, and I've, I've written a lot about these sites, and there are lots of them out there. Two of the most famous ones were, um, and I don't mind naming them because they don't exist anymore, were shadowcrew.com and carterplanet, uh, I believe it was carterplanet.com. One was based in... Uh, Eastern Europe. The other one was based here in the States. They're both defunct. One of them was taken down by the Secret Service in 2004. That was Shadow Crew. Uh-huh. 
Um, but these were sites where you could go and essentially learn everything, I mean, really everything that you needed to know from, from beginning to end um, about how to steal credit card information, how to steal Social Security information, how to get credit reports online, how to get fake IDs, how to get all the tools that you would need, or, and how to meet people who could who could provide services for you. Uh, like an underground network. It was a complete underground economy for yes. identity theft. Right, I mean, right. With artisans with different skill sets in, in identity theft. A well-organized business. Oh, it's a very organized business. <laughs> and, and those sites have been replaced with other sites that still exist even to this day. Right. And, you know, there, there are underground or there are undercover... Um, the, the law enforcement is well aware of these sites, um, and there's uh, they they operate undercover, um, watching them and and then do know, a sting. Yeah, they do stings, but the, it seems to me that there's you know very little that they can do about them. I mean, Shiva Sharma is is you know one of thousands of of uh, kids, and I mean uh, they're often very young people. If you if you look at the people that they bust, they're often very you know teenagers right. operating out of their grandmother's basement. You know, and they'd get and, and like I think his wife had said in that article that you know you quoted her that like okay well you know it's going to be hard for him not to do this anymore yeah. because you know he's working at minimum wage for eight hours where right. he can make that in five minutes. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. So it it's just you know an easy profitable crime that you're not yeah. very often going to yeah. get you know get kicked you know get get picked up for. And I think there are two tiers. You know, there's 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 really organized crime that I think has mostly migrated overseas. You know, there are, there are Russian gangs and there's 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 a, a slowly developing I think Middle Eastern kind of contingent and there's certainly the Nigerian uh, element that has long been involved in fraud and. The, um, there's, there's um, in the Far East. I think that there's a fairly right. well developed um, organized crime ring that, that that is really well engaged and, and deploys phishing and deploys um, lots of fairly sophisticated and well networked um, electronic methods to siphon. Li- I mean, large dollar amounts. Uh, I mean, in in the, in the millions. Right, and um, then, you know, how, how, how can our, well, I mean, yeah, we have Interpol, and yes, we work yeah. with this country, but, you know, we can't even do it in our own country, let alone another yeah. country. Yeah, no, it's extremely difficult, and I've talked to lots of law enforcement um, uh, officials here in, in the States who who will say that, it's a, you know, it's a very slow process, and... You're you're operating in an international uh, you're in an international field where you have varying levels of interest in tackling this problem. You have um, law enforcement in other countries who are obviously beset with much more pressing problems on the ground. Right. Who um, it's very difficult to get law enforcement, for instance, in other countries interested in solving a problem that doesn't really affect their people on the ground because the money isn't coming from, for right. instance, Ukraine's banks. The money is coming from U.S. banks. Right. So, so what, what incentive is there, what really? What incentive is there, yeah. Um, and, you know, I can, uh, you can sympathize with that. Sure. I mean, they, they have much more important problems to deal with there. So... Um, you know, dealing with the problem on an international level is is extremely difficult. Um, and then you have you know 
here in the States, you have a different kind of problem, I think, which is um, folks like Shiva Sharma who are not making mad money. They're not making the millions of dollars. But, you know, for an 18-year-old kid, um, being able to, whenever he wants, uh, go and get, you know, $8,000 is an entirely new thing. Right, I mean, right. That, that did not exist 15 years ago. Exactly. You'd there have to use no, a gun. You had to use a gun. Right. There was never a time before the Internet when an 18-year-old kid without a gun could just produce out of the ether eight, ten thousand dollars $10,000 whenever he wants it. And this is what, you know, this is essentially the conversation that I was having with Shiva when, when I was talking to him up in jail. I mean, and, and he was very savvy about his own weakness for that, uh, for that kind of for that kind of ability, he knew that when he gets out, that his struggle was going to be um, knowing that he's smart enough to you know, and he just knows very easily that he can walk up to a computer and make ten thousand dollars happen when whenever he wants. He just has to right. not do it, you know. Right. Oh, I guess he's going to have to do like Kevin Mitnick. He'll probably have to, uh, like, be a big consultant, you know, <laughs> charging well, lots of fees, you know, yeah. to be able to, you know, or the guy from Catch Me If You Can, uh, what's his name? You know, I'm talking about. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, yeah. he's going to have to do something like that um, to, to make his money. And a lot of them do. In fact, we've interviewed, I think I right. gave you the name of one of the guys that we interviewed who was an identity thief. Also, uh, Ron Hemphill, who was on our yeah. You yeah. Know, who was on our show. And uh, I think I gave you his name anyway. But um, he, yeah, he's another one. And he talks about it. And now he, goodness, he's gone to the, to the you know, to the light and uh, basically has written a book and done things. But I think that... You know, if you're savvy and if you're going to have to do that, or you're going to end up back in jail because it's just going to be too tempting. At some point, we're going to have a cottage industry of consultants, you know. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) uh, Gee, I'm one of the few people who knows about identity theft who hasn't really committed it, you know. Yeah, right, exactly, yeah. So, I mean, you know, Shiva was, uh, I believe he's, you know, truly repentant, and he he now is married and has a, you know, has a young baby, yeah. Yeah, a young daughter who... um, He's actually up for parole now, and um, if he gets out, uh, I, I have hopes that he'll stay clean. Well, you've interviewed a lot of victims, and I and I have to thank you on the air. And some of the people who listen to this show uh, get all of our subscription to our podcast, so they've they've heard when you know the people that you've been like uh, you've helped Claire Miller when you did the story on her. You were her hero and mine. Um, remember, Claire was the one who um, was the victim of cyber identity theft. Yeah. And um, and she couldn't get the New York City police to do anything until you wrote that story. That was a disturbing story. Yeah. It was a very disturbing story. And then, then of course, Ray Lorenzo, who also... <laughs> well... It was very interesting about your story, too, because when, when I was trying to help him to get his criminal identity theft records at the Suffolk County Court cleared up, they kept telling me, you need a motion. We can't do it without a motion. Uh-huh. But as soon as your story... Was <laughs> was in the newspaper within a day. Suddenly, we got the thing, the database cleared. Mm-hmm. Now, did and you yet, know how powerful you are, Tom? Well, <laughs> you know, but he's still struggling, right? Well, but he's struggling in a different way. I mean, yes, now we've cleared the data the bases, so that's at least any new background check will not show him as a felon. 
Mm. Okay, any new one. The problem that we're struggling with is the old background checks that are with companies that, that won't spend the money for a new one. As soon as they see his name, they'll equate him with the old felony record. That's the problem we have now. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, the problem with all this data out there is that, you know, once it proliferates and, and reverberates from, from database to database to database, um, it is, we lose so much control over, you know, our, you know, this mosaic of ourselves, this kind of digital mosaic that is supposed to represent us. Um, and and we are, we're completely powerless to do anything about it. And there's really no, no legal regime that, that, that permits us to do anything about it. And there have been, you know, laws proposed that would give us some power over that. But as it is, there, there really is nothing. And, and I think Ray is a perfect example of what happens when you don't have that. Exactly. And, and that's why I was so thrilled that you did the article on him, because when we bring these things up, you know, no one pays attention until there's an article by Tom Zeller or someone else who, who writes a really, you know, provocative, truthful article about what's really happening. So, you know, I mean, I, I honor you for what you do, because it is far more, you know, I've told you this, you know, I, I really believe, you know, people can have lawsuits, but the lawsuits are just the cost of doing business for a company. But when you bring up the issue um, to the entire public and then, you know, the legislature starts, you know, introducing bills because of the publicity, that's real change. That makes much more impact than any lawsuit. Mm. You know? Did you know that you had that much influence? Well, you know, I I wish I had as much influence as you think I do. (laughs) Well, but but then your articles get out there and then they get you know, spread over and people can find them on the internet. But let me let me introduce you because people driving by and want to know, well, who, who's she talking about? We're talking about Tom Zeller Jr., who is a fabulous journalist with the New York Times. He writes about technology and privacy. He's very uh, adept at all this techie stuff. And he's a, a really great writer. And, you you know, it's really fun to read his articles. So let's talk a little bit now about the role of technology now that more people are coming online. And, and what, do you, what do you think about the audience, you know, these younger kids that are growing up with this stuff? Yeah, that's um, an interesting question. Um, you know, one thing that struck me, I, I was actually writing an article uh, a while back about um, young people Oh, MySpace, the article you wrote on MySpace? I think, well, no, that, was a, that was a different one, but... Uh, that was a good article, too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> MySpace is an interesting place, actually. Oh, God, we'll talk about that in a minute. <laughs> do you have a MySpace page? I don't, but my kids do. Um, it, it's scary. It it's, is an interesting it, We don't like it. Believe me, we don't like really, it. Really? You don't like it? No. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a pretty much a free-for-all there, isn't it? Well, I think the young people that are probably listening to this, like the ones who are listening that go to the University of California, Irvine, they've grown up with it. They have, yeah. they have it. On, I mean, even our, even KUCI right here has a MySpace, um, you know, site. Yeah. Okay. And I think they don't think about it. They don't understand the dark side, mm-hmm. and they don't understand that if they put something up there that uh, they don't think is is revealing, it can be a place put together with the other information that they put on there, that someone really can stalk them or find them. And, and it's happened, and we know about it. Right, right. I mean, there, there certainly is that danger. And, you know, I, I think that there's, 
you know, the the flip side of that is what what do you do about it though? I mean, do you do you create a you know what kind of regime of rules do you create? It, it becomes an unattractive site to to people of that of that age if there are too many rules too. Exactly. I, you know. I mean, they love to be able to communicate, and, you know, their peer group is so important, and it's so much fun, and, yeah. you know, I mean, there are some real benefits to it, but, you know, you think you're talking with somebody who is 16 years old, and really they're a 58-year-old pervert, right. Right. right? right. Yeah, it's true, and I, I just think that it's something that, you know, I'm, I'm in complete agreement about the dangers of revealing too much about yourself, but I do think that, you know, with with kids of a certain age, the best that we can do probably is, um, especially college-age students, I mean, you know, certainly we can only tell them, you know, be careful and and hope for the best, right? I mean, um, MySpace, if, if it were to put any kind of restrictions on what people could, could or could not do on there, uh, people would flood out of there in a heartbeat. There are server spaces all over the place. Right, and the thing that makes it attractive, I think, to to young people is that it feels very much like, um, and I've said this before um, in other interviews, is that it, it it feels very much like a found space, just like a clunky old, you know, warehouse where a bunch of fun tools were just kind of left behind, and they and kids could kind of come in and pick up those tools and do and have some fun. It's a hangout. It's, it's a, hang a hangout. And it's like an old dorm room or a, right. you know, a, it's like a kid's bedroom. And that's why, I mean, it looks quite ugly, doesn't it? It's a mess. I mean, it's it's. But they love it. They love it. <laughs> yeah, they hang, they put all kinds of pictures up, and it's just right. like it's, it's, it's not very well designed, and it's not supposed to be because right. um, it's what, it looks exactly like a, <laughs> like a kid's bedroom, you know. It's, yeah. it's just a mess. Um, and if you were to try and... and and not make it so, they'd go somewhere else, you know, where it could be so. Right. So, in a way, it's a, you're kind of between a rock and a hard place there. Um, so what is the audience? Like now, like you, you're, you're younger than me. So, you know, yeah. I, I, I get excited that I'm techie, that I can do an iPod, <laughs> and I can upload right. my stuff, and I get all excited about that as an old lady here doing this. But, you know, I mean, I'm thinking about my kids' generation that, are, that grew up with, computers that use it all the time that mm-hmm. that don't have any clue about the privacy or or at this point they don't care about it you know well, you know reaching them you know what what is the audience for you know for just information you mean well i'm thinking like you know in in terms of who you do all this technology research for your articles yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, it's really interesting because I wrote an article about, you know, Generation Y, which is the, supposed to be this generation kind of coming up, right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, in talking to a lot of them, I was often struck by the number who I, I, I would put this question to them, which is, you know, when was the last time you actually physically had a newspaper in your hand? <laughs> you know, yeah. it just literally touched newsprint. Yeah. And I was often struck by the number that, that said that they had never touched. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. That they couldn't, or, or they couldn't recall. Wow. Um, which was really kind of surprising to me. But, you know, the research does bear that out. That some, some, you know, the, the generation coming up and uh, newspapers and, you know, print media in general, magazines fare much better um, just because it, it truly is a different, 
um, right, right. form. Right. Um, but newspapers in general are, are resigned to the fact that we are a, we are a, a dying uh, medium, and I say that I think you know with no trepidation. You mean the um, physical, but not necessarily the physical, the, the physical yeah, paper. But, no, but, but not, not not the online. New not York the Times. institution. Yeah. I mean, what we do as journalists, yeah. I think, and what we do uh, endeavor to do as journalists under the rubric of the New York Times. Um, remains the same. Our mission and our values and um, our commitment to, you know, to, to journalism as uh, an endeavor to, to discover, you know, the real story right. to, um, remains the same. It remains completely unchanged. And the, the medium doesn't matter. You know, where it ends up doesn't matter. I think we have to be agnostic on that. Right, right. Um, and I think that that's something that we're actually kind of grappling with now. And it's not, it's not an easy process. You know, a lot of us very much love newspapers. You know, I mean, just in and of itself, we love newspapers. Well, that kind of leads me to, you know, that, that whole question of what's coming now with this whole idea of the balance of freedom of the press mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, security and terrorism and governmental secrets, you know, I mean, that's going to affect you every day in the New York Times, too. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so, so what are your thoughts on that? Because, you know, I mean, you, you reveal a lot of things. I mean, usually, uh, you know, I know you've usually told me I have to use a full name because I have to prove who it is, and, you know, and, and that's fine. And sometimes people don't want to talk to you because of that. But, mm-hmm. but um, you know, what is your thought on that? You know, it's people who are willing to go to jail because they don't want to reveal their sources. What What are your thoughts on all that? Or can't you talk about that right well, now? Well, no. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I, I don't think that that much um, has, has changed. You know, for me personally, you know, as a journalist, I don't feel any differently now um, than I did, you know, ten years ago on 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 the topic. Um, you know, w- we are in a different climate, you know, now in the post nine eleven universe. Right. Um, and I think that it's you know very much at the forefront of a lot of people's minds. Um, but it, it it has been before. You know, I mean, it's not like the culture has not been through through these you know spasms of of um, concern over what, you know, where the press needs to draw the line um, or where, you know, where the government is is overreaching Mm -hmm. um, in its powers, you know. I mean, I think we all remember the Nixon administration. I think we, you know, these, and it's healthy that these debates go on, you know. Wherever they, you know, whatever your politics are, I think that it's, you know, and and so well we're talking about not politics we're talking yeah. about freedom of the press which is one of our bill of rights right Bedrock. i mean well yeah <laughs> i mean we're talking about really liberty and we're talking about freedom and we're really not talking about uh, you know democrats or republicans we're really talking about part of our our heritage of freedom of the press and that's what makes us different from china right right and In fact, you wrote an article about China recently, too. Right. <laughs> and I think that, you know, I, I mean, I think that it's a little bit hyperbolic. If, if anyone thinks that we are, you know, I, I think if anything that 
we as you know a press corps may have been you know somewhat intimidated in you know the immediate aftermath of of 9/11 and um you know i'm speaking only for myself but i i do think that you know we maybe didn't ask you know the hardest questions that we could have uh immediately after 9/11 um or before but, or before 9/11 or before 9/11 <laughs> yeah. maybe um but uh, you know i i do think that that uh you know we're we're constantly evolving as an institution just like any other institution that we create as as human beings and that there is there is nothing that um this administration or any other administration has done that is that cannot be undone and that you know as an ins- as an institution uh the press is is still healthy and i i don't feel that uh that we are in danger in any way of uh of losing the power that we have or at least losing our voice we just have right. to use it right um and and there's the whole issue of of even the press being you know um held up for scrutiny you know like the the issue of the the false photos that, yeah. you know regarding the middle east thing. yeah i think that's a fantastic thing what what do you think about that which Ab- is, about the well about any of this stuff but but basically about yeah i mean even the photos the some, photos the, yeah, the email the, you sent me this morning yeah that was um uh i actually did you get the i sent you an email this morning there was a um the caption on the uh the website was incorrect but that guy was actually just had had fallen down he was not dead or right. claimed right. to be dead or right. i don't know it was it was just one of these blog you know um you know feeding frenzies that, right. that had no basis but right but you it was know not a doctored photo but um, but the idea of making up, you know, false photos and then, you know, not not you guys necessarily making right. them up, but someone else making them up and then you guys using them or, or other uh, journalists or, or period. I, I think that the kind of scrutiny, you know, that, that the, the traditional media gets now that the Internet has, you know, kind of reached its full blossom and the blogosphere has kind of turned its lens on on the mainstream media is for the most part extremely healthy you know sometimes it's very hard because the traditional media is not used to being scrutinized in that way and i've 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 been on the receiving end of that enough as much as anybody um and it's you know it's not fun and i think the traditional media has ordinarily not been accustomed to to having that happen to them so it's so it's it's been a very prickly kind of few years while they adjust to that, but overall, I think it's a, it's a very healthy kind of thing. Now, there's no there's no system of checks on on you know people who can kind of sit on the internet and and just kind of bloviate all day long. Um, and certainly, they don't necessarily. I mean, I'm not speaking for everyone, and I'm, I'll probably get pilloried for anything that I say here. Anyway, okay, be but, careful. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, I mean, certainly it is it is possible to to create a tempest, you know, out of nothing, if 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 you don't require yourself to check, you know, to pick up a phone and check facts or on on anything that you say or to actually investigate. Right. Um, so. You know the blogosphere. If 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 all you're trying to do is create controversy, the you know the inter- folks who who are 
you know, clamoring on the internet certainly have an advantage um, in that regard. But I think setting that aside, the level of scrutiny that, that the mainstream media receives, I think, has been a great thing. I think it has forced us to kind of take a second look at, at what we do. Um, it's taken us down a notch, um, or at least some of us down a notch. Um, and uh, I think it's a, it's a, it's a great level. Yeah, and in yeah, fact, it it's, a great, it's a great, you know, let's look at the AOL story from last week. You yeah. know, the one with the, with the data that leaked. Right, right. I mean, that was something that was kind of note, picked up by the blogs. Right. You know, they saw it first. Right. Um, and then we picked up on it and dug into it further. And it, it's, it's networked journalism. I think yes. Jeff Jarvis, you know, called it networked journalism, which is exactly everybody working together to, yeah. to get to the bottom of a story, which is exactly the way it's, it's a much more powerful as a whole, you know. Right, right. Um, and, and it's interesting because, um, you know, now anybody can be a journalist. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. I mean, anybody can put an article. I, I read these blogs, and, and I don't really engage in those because I never know how, how it might be used against me or somehow changed. But I was yeah. looking just, you know, this morning when I knew I was going to interview you, and, and I've, I've read so many of your articles, but I, I, just, I just did a, a Google search of your name. And I found you in a lot of blogs. Did you know that? <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> yes, I did. Yeah. People commenting about various articles and kind mm -hmm. of seeing you sometimes they're thinking you're left wing. Right. And, or right wing. Or right, right wing yeah. or, you know, or uh, over dramatic or, you know. Yep. And then I thought, I, oh, my God, I better just do another Google search of myself. I haven't done that in a long time. I can imagine what's out there on me. Yep. But I thought, how interesting. Here, here the journalist who gets mm -hmm. to comment on everybody else is now being commented about right, right. Um, and and of course this is why it's fun for me to interview you because you've interviewed me and um, and and hopefully you don't think I'm not being nice like you're always so no. nice to me you're always so nice to me Tom well yeah you know in a lot of ways those blog you know it's interesting to read those posts because it's very much like the data the, the little bits of data that get out there because you right. read them and you realize it's it's really not you you know it's this kind exactly. of it's this mosaic of you that doesn't have anything that, you know all these assumptions about who you are and what your politics are and what it, it really has it's just data about you that people are making these assumptions and you, you just kind of write it off you know and isn't that what we're, I mean, this is great because we only have how many minutes, Lloyd? We only have five minutes. So this yeah. is a perfect segue into some kind of global thing that we're thinking about because isn't that what we're really dealing with, Tom, in this information age? Yeah. That there is myriad databases with mega stuff on us. Yeah. Right? Everywhere. And, and you know, like... I had gotten off all the pre-approved offer lists, right? And then um, we purchased a little piece of property, and suddenly I'm getting all those pre-approved offers again. Uh -huh. And I, it's driving me nuts. And I'm thinking, how do, I just went through this for years, you know, to get off all these pre-approved offer lists, and now I have to start, and I have to start making calls. I mean, it is just like, how can you put your fingers in all these holes when the Titanic is sinking? <laughs> right. What do we do, Tom? Well, you know, that's, that is the question of the ages. You know? I mean, I, I really think that one of the first things that people need to do is, you know, and, and it almost sounds kind of trite, but, you know, they need, to, they need to get political. You know, they really need to get in touch with the folks who are in charge and, and make it 
clear to them that what they want is some power over their digital and financial selves. But you know what? I mean, if you get just like these little emails that you send, and I yeah. and I do that, you know, and I've testified in Congress, even yeah. even taking the time to write my long testimonies and go and testify in Congress, yeah, yeah. I don't have the power because I don't have the money that these big lobbyists have. Yeah, no, I I think it has to go beyond that too. I mean, did you actually? I mean, when you bought this property, I mean, you had already like signed up for the. Um, do not call and do not, you know. Oh yes, are you yeah, kidding? Yeah, but but we bought the that. property and I and I it was with and I re, you know got the money from a bank that's my own bank that I have already opted out of all the privacy, mm-hmm. and in California you have a right to ask uh, to have a company. Um, you know we have opt in for third party affili- third party non affiliates. Mm-hmm. So in order to be able to share my my sensitive financial information with a third party, I have to opt in. Um, as for affiliates, I cannot. So it must have been the title company because the title company um, had five pages of affiliates. <laughs> mm-hmm. So uh, because I know it wasn't my bank, I'm pretty sure it was the title company that gave us title uh, insurance on the new place. That that's I, you know I figured it out. But it just what can I do? Right. I have no I have no thing. Yeah, Lloyd says we have about three minutes. So okay, yeah. so so we're going to depend on you, Tom. Because you have to have the voice for yeah. for myriad people. <laughs> it's down to me. Is that what you're saying? Is this daunting or what? Yeah. I mean, are, are you willing to accept this mission? <laughs> well, you know, I'm doing my best. Yeah. It's it's a you know it's a big problem. I think it, there's there's a lot of uh, you know there's there's a lot of data out there. It's an and it's very slippery, and there are a lot of leaks. And there's a lot of financial information out there being held in databases that uh, you know aren't just aren't just being protected by the city banks or you know even the choice points who have shored up their their walls now, but by you know Bob's Bob's data warehouse somewhere. Right, you know, right. Just, so. Um, and then you've got you know, and then we've talked many times about the you know over 90 million people who've been affected by these uh, data breaches. Right. right, and uh, and you also got you know a, an economy that is that that kind of thrives on easy credit, and easy credit benefits not just you know consumers who ostensibly want easy credit, but also identity thieves. Right, uh, right, and it and it goes beyond the credit issue. I mean, the credit issue is so much easier th- to take care of in terms of of, right. of 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 you know dealing with your identity because of the Fair Credit Reporting Act. But right. but you know when we talk about stuff like the the Claire Millers with the cyber identity theft that you're just sure. you know, or we're talking well, about yeah. yeah. Well, I mean that's such a. I mean, what can what can you do about that? I mean that. I mean Claire Miller was a staggering case to me because it's. It, I mean. Law enforcement needs to get more involved. Congress needs to get more involved. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, I think that, you know, from the local level to the state level to the federal level, everybody needs to pay more attention to how our our digital selves are, uh, you know, how our digital selves are being used to affect our real selves. 
and it may not even be the same. It may not even be the same. Well, Lloyd's given me the high sign. Yep. Tom, thank you so much for being on. We uh, we really appreciate it, and we are going to talk to you again because we know your stories are going to keep coming. Entirely my pleasure. Okay, thank you. You've been listening to Tom Zeller, who is a journalist with the New York Times. He's an expert on privacy and technology issues and interviews people and just fabulous uh you know, the dark side of what's going on in privacy and identity theft and technology. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. You can also go and learn more about our previous guests, hear their interviews, download the podcasts, and even subscribe to our podcasts. And you can see who our upcoming guests are at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Um, we have an intern tonight. Keith, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Lloyd, for being a great engineer. And um, we will see you at 5 to 6 p.m. next week on Privacy Piracy. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.